our study through the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. We'll start the first two verses just to get our jump off in uh, to this, and, uh, but we will look at most of the chapter tonight as we continue our series. Wow, we've been a long ways in Revelation, haven't we? Uh, we're getting close to the end now. So um, this really kind of starts the uh, last grouping of chapters, verses tw uh, chapters 20 to 22. And so uh, we've come a long journey through Revelation, and, and uh, the whole theme is revealing Jesus as champion. Jesus is the hero, he's the winner, and uh, you're very, very wise to, have, um, to give your heart and your life and follow him uh, as you go through this life. So look, if you will, Revelation chapter 20, and uh, look at this passage of scripture together tonight. Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. How many of you have ever heard the song, What a Wonderful World? Anybody ever heard Louis, Louis Armstrong? I don't know if anybody else should ever be allowed to sing it but Louis Armstrong, right? It's not something about his voice that really, really makes that song uh, resonate. Here's some, of the, here's some of the words of that song, What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, and everybody say, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow so pretty in the sky are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I don't know if you think it's a wonderful world or not. As I was thinking about the passage of Scripture we're dealing with, that song came to my mind, and I found out something I did not know. That song was released during the height of the Vietnam War. I had no idea of that. It was released during a very bleak time in our nation's history, really a very bleak time in the world's history, and, and, and perhaps the reason it resonated so much was that people needed hope. They needed some kind of, of desire that the world will be better one day or maybe to appreciate uh, the world that we're living in at the time. It brings us a sense of, of hope to hear songs like that. And I think the reason I thought of that as we're all about Revelation chapter 20 is no matter what your situation in life is, one day there's going to be a wonderful world here. Now, Revelation 20 teaches us about a time coming when Jesus is going to reign as king, and this world will really, really be uh, a wonderful place uh, to live. We're going to see that God has the ability to turn this place into a wonderful world. Revelation 20, probably the most debated chapter in the book of Revelation, but the reason for that is because of this thing called the millennium. The millennium is a Latin word that means a thousand years years. And uh, there's, as I said, it's been the most debated passage uh, in the entire book of Revelation. For centuries, people have debated, talked about what it means. And tonight, I'm very, very glad you're here because we're going to settle it tonight. Andy Riley's going to come and share with us what it truly means. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that tonight. We will not settle it. But I do want to, as we, as we jump in, I do want to give you the three main views. And then, of course, you'll see what, what kind of mine is. And, and, and out of that, hopefully find some, um, some real applications for Revelation chapter 20. So it all has to do with millennium. Millennium's a thousand years that Revelation talks about that Jesus will reign. And so there are three main views throughout church history. One is called 
post-millennialism. Post-millennialists believe that Jesus will return to earth after the thousand years of Revelation chapter uh, 20. The post-millennialists believe that uh, the gospel will continue to spread, continue to grow, and that the world will become so Christianized, such a golden age of Christianity across the world that Jesus will see fit to step back into history. Um, Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney were two people that really believed in post-millennialism. This view pretty much disappeared after World War II, as you can tell. Um, World War I dealt it a pretty hard deal. And you can understand it from Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney's standpoint. Uh, they were living in a time of revival. They were 17 and 1800s. The gospel was making great progress. And so they thought it was just going to continue. And today we look back at that and we think, boy, that would be a tough view to kind of hold on to today. But if we were alive during their time, we might very well have agreed with them. We all kind of live inside the culture of our own time. So very few post-millennialism uh, post-millennialists uh, today. Second one is the amillennialist. The amillennialist uh, believe that the kingdom age is right now. That the thousand years is symbolic. It started when Christ died and rose again, and it ends when Jesus comes back. That the blessings of the millennium are spiritual blessings, and they're being fulfilled in the hearts of the believers in the world right now. It's an unfortunate word. Uh, amillennialism means no. Ah means no, no millennium. It's not that they don't don't believe in a millennium. They don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Um, the amillennialism, Augustine, Calvin, Martin, Luther were all prominent um, uh, church fathers that are church leaders that were amillennialists. Uh, J.C. Sproul, uh, Body Bauckham. If any of y'all have heard of Body Bauckham, he's become more and more popular. He's an amillennialist today. So uh, J.I. Packer, if you've ever read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, he's also an amillennialist. And so that's what they believe. Um, uh, by the time of the um, church historian Eusebius, amillennialism, I'm trying to say that three times fast. Amillennialism was the predominant church view by the fourth century when Eusebius wrote about it. The third view is the view that probably that, that I hold, hold to, probably most of you hold to, is what's called premillennialism. Premillennialism believed that the thousand years comes directly after, pre, Jesus comes before the millennium and that his return to the earth in, uh, in, in, in victory and power. And this believes, and even, with, even within premillennialism, there's debate, but a lot of premillennialism believes that the thousand years, a literal thousand years, and the, um, the kingdom promises to Israel in the Old Testament that we're going to look at in a little bit are literally come to true on the earth. These things literally happen as Jesus rules and reigns uh, in our heart. And so the promises that uh, God, I mean, astounding promises we're going to look at actually uh, happen. As I said, that's a very simplistic view, just kind of introduce you to the idea of what the different views are. Um, I believe in, um, I believe the premillennialism has a, has a, has the strongest view. It's a, probably the most popular view today. Uh, amillennialism is kind of making a comeback with uh, a lot of the covenant theology. But David Jeremiah, uh, John MacArthur, uh, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, these guys are all uh, premillennialists. And so as we look at this, inside each one of those groups, there's 39 different flavors, okay? Somebody asked me one time, what does, what do Baptists believe? And I said, it depends on which one you talk to. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of, you kind of a lot of different ideas in the midst of all of that. Um, the, the council of, uh, in Ephesus at 431 um, said that the idea of a literal millennium was superstition. So you see this 
comes and goes all through church history, you know. And tonight, uh, most of us are probably premillennialists because we've been raised in churches that were premillennialists. And so we've read authors, our favorite preachers are premillennialists. And so we tend to see it that way. I don't know that anybody has it all figured out. Uh, I like what one guy said. He said, I'm a pro-millennialist. I'm fart. <laughs> and another guy said, I'm pan-millennialist. I think it's all going to pan out when Jesus comes back. And so that's all my millennialist jokes for tonight. Um, <laughs> and here's the thing. Very few people have had the impact on the world that, Charles Finney, uh, that John Wesley, Charles Finney, or D.L. Moody have had. And they all had very, very different views about the end times, very different views about the end times. And so the idea is that we all believe that Jesus is coming back and that should encourage us to live for Jesus today. What we're going to see is as we take a pretty straightforward look, what I believe is a pretty straightforward look, a look, a look that believes, I believe that the book of Revelation does follow a linear timeline. The Amillennials believe that it kind of goes you know, all kind of together. As we look at this, what we're going to see is that Jesus returns in 19, the battle of Armageddon, the prophet and the, and the, uh, and the, the uh, Antichrist are thrown into the lake of fire. And then in chapter 21, we start seeing the new heaven and the new earth. Chapter 20 is kind of the bridge between Armageddon and heaven. And it's this thousand year, it's this middle chapter, this thousand year lane, a uh, 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 thousand year millennium in between parenthesis in between the two. Now, what I want to do tonight is encourage you, no matter if your world is a wonderful world right now, it feels like a difficult world, it feels like a dark world, we can't change sometimes the outward circumstances of our world, but if you're a Christian, you're on the winning side, <laughs> and you've got things to look forward to, and the best days are always ahead for the believer, the world may get worse, but the believer has reason to say, my best days are ahead of me. So when Jesus rules completely, it will be a wonderful world. And the more that we see Jesus ruling completely in our own hearts, and the more we see and allow Jesus to rule completely in Hopewell Baptist Church, the more we allow Jesus to rule completely in our homes, the more we will experience how wonderful he truly is. Sometimes we get cut off. A while back, my satellite, the local channels went out. They had a thunderstorm and the local channels went out. I mean, the whole satellite deal went out. When it came on, everything came back but the local channels. I couldn't get local channels. And so, you know, fiddled with it a little bit, tried some different things and finally called the, the uh, satellite people. They run some diagnostics, said we got to send a technician out. And uh, the little tree next to my house has gotten to be a bigger tree <laughs> and the branches got in front of the satellite. And of all things, it had cut me off. It cut off the signal just from the local channel satellite. And so I couldn't receive it. And sometimes what happens to us is we let things grow in between us and our relationship with Christ. We let things interfere with Jesus ruling completely in our lives. And when we do, we cease to experience the wonderfulness of the Christian life, the wonderfulness of walking day by day, uh, moment by moment with Jesus. And so as we look at it tonight, we want to keep those things in mind. For this to be a wonderful world, let me mention four things. Number one, Satan has to be restrained. Satan has to be restrained. We saw this morning that Satan is a liar and a murderer 
and a deceiver. We know that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to attack the identity of God. He wants to attack your identity. And as long as he's having free reign, we're not going to have a wonderful world. When you have somebody who's really deceptive and really bent on your destruction and the destruction of everything good and godly and holy, you cannot have a wonderful world when people are listening to him we're all being lied to and we have to put our spiritual ears on to pay attention so at this point in the story the false prophet and the antichrist have already been thrown in, and the beast have been thrown in the lake of fire most if not all sinful humanity has been taken away from the earth and then look at chapter 20 we get the big blow for us to have a wonderful world verses one and two then i saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of that dragon, that old serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. Boy, he really wants you to know who he's talking about, doesn't he? And bound him for a thousand years. Notice, Satan is a supernatural enemy. I see little memes on Facebook, and I've even reposted some of them myself, to be honest with you. Little memes on Facebook that say something like, uh, I want to be the kind of person, and when I wake up, Satan says, oh, no, not him again. <laughs> oh, no, not her again. Uh, we're really no match for him. <laughs> we don't intimidate him at all. He's a supernatural enemy. Now, in the power of Christ, we can resist him, right? In the power of Christ, we don't have to listen to him. But Satan is a supernatural enemy. But what I want you to see here is that one angel ties him up. One. That's a bad angel, amen? <laughs> I mean, that is a mighty angel. Sometimes we get to thinking that, you know, Satan, and Satan is a supernatural enemy, and we get a little bit overestimating Satan, and we forget that God's called the God of angel armies and one angel of supernatural strength comes down and ties Satan up and throws him into the pit. Now, if we really do have guardian angels, I want him. <laughs> Amen. Lord, put that guy around Hopewell Baptist Church, right? Put that guy traveling in your car. Man, we have a God. And that's nothing compared to the strength that God has. Right? And so this is a, to encourage us. And the angel has a, has a chain and a key. The key represents authority. He, God has given him authority to chain Satan up. And so he binds him with a chain, throws him into the abyss. Think about this. Remember in the, Old, in the New Testament when the guy that had the legion of demons was running around. And it says that he lived in the tombs and all this kind of stuff. And they could not bind him with chains. Try as they could, they had the supernatural strength with him. They couldn't hold him. But here's the thing. The point is Satan's demons can break human chains, but one chain from God can tie him up. Amen. And praise God, God can break any chain Satan throws your way. We can be set free to live lives in the abundance of God's Holy Spirit. Now, notice the description here. He didn't want, to miss you. He didn't want you to miss it. He calls him a dragon. Dragon emphasizes his fierceness, his ferociousness, his cruelty. You have a cruel foe tonight. Never forget that. Calls him the serpent of old. What does that remind you of? Reminds you of the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? He is a deceiver. Serpent of old goes back. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's going to try to lie to you. The word devil uh, means he is a slanderer. 
He accuses us whenever you sin and, uh, and Satan says to you, man, you just ought to quit. You're, you're a failure. You're no good. You don't even know why you try. That's the devil. That's the slander. Satan means opposition. Opposition. Satan opposes God. He opposes God's people. He opposes God's church. And so no wonder sometimes in your Christian life you find it very difficult. You find it very hard. Why? You have an, uh, an opposer. Somebody's in opposition to you. I was talking to somebody this morning and uh, we were talking and they said, you know, somebody that's on fire for Jesus, they catch more opposition from the enemy than a lost person does. Why would Satan want to stir up a lost person? It's got them, right? If he stirs them up, makes their life hard and difficult and all kinds of trouble, they may seek God for relief. And so sometimes his best strategy for somebody like that is just leave them alone. So Satan is bound up. He's rendered ineffective. Look in verse 3 and tell us why. He threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from doing what? From deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. He's being kept from deceiving. He's being kept from lying to people. That you can't have a wonderful world when you're being lied to. And it's one of the great challenges of our life as we listen, as we, as we live with the emotions that we live with, to be able to filter through the fear and the anger and, and, and the jealousy and, all, and the love and the joy and all that. Be able to filter through that and say, where does Satan try to use my emotions against me? Where's he lying to me in this? In the decisions of my life, Satan so much wants to lie to us for things like, you know, uh, you'll have more fun disobeying God. You really will. If you're just, not, not, maybe not lie, if you're just kind of fudge a little bit, you'll have more fun. Sin in this one time, it, it won't really matter. You aren't good enough to be a witness for Christ. You aren't good enough to teach a class. You, you will never change. You've been this way your whole life. Boy, if you could have won that $1 billion Powerball, <laughs> you'd really be happy. You'd really, really be happy. You're too busy to spend time with God, and it wouldn't matter anyway. You're being lied to. I heard about a, a pastor one time. He said he came out to his church, and he started the service off, uh, and he said, a lie believed as truth will affect your life as though it were true. A lie believed as truth will affect your life as though it were true. And then he did a little experiment. He said, he told his congregation, I have secretly placed four $50 bills under the pews, randomly scattered across. And so if you want to, now, I did, I'm not saying this, this pastor, I'm not, I'm not, did, I've not done this. This pastor did this. He said, I've randomly placed four $50 bills under the pews. If you want to see if it's under yours now, go ahead and look. And he said, man, there was a scramble. <laughs> They was people on their knees, crawling up under the pews, looking at trying to go up under people's pews and all that kind of stuff. In the meantime, he said he didn't really, he was lying. <laughs> he didn't really do it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that to you. So anyway, after they did it for a little bit, he uh, looking at all the seats and all that kind of stuff, he finally said, you know, guys, y'all are acting silly because y'all believed a lie. And that's what Satan's goal is, to make us act in ways that are really against our best well-being because he lies to us. Here's a good question, guys, that um, we heard at youth camp this year. One of the, the, the speakers said, who has your ear? Who has your ear? 
I mean, really, 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 who has your ear mostly? Does uh, Fox News or CNN News have your ear? Does Netflix have your ear? Does social media have your ear? Do your friends have your ear? Do they have your ear more than the Holy Spirit has your ear, more than God has your ear? If you don't let, and I don't let God have my ear, if my ear is not tuned into him more than these other places, I'm going to fall for a lie and declare that I'm not. And just know that I'm not. Listen, who has your ear? Martin Luther wrote a song called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let me read the last verse to you. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. So first of all, Satan, it has to be removed. Secondly, we see the Savior reigning. You can't have a wonderful world without Christ reigning as king over the world. Only when Jesus rules completely will we really acknowledge this wonderful world. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. The rest of the dead are lost people. We'll see at the end of the, end of the chapter of the great white throne judgment. The rest of the dead are not the saved people. This is the first reverse resurrection. I mentioned last time in Revelation 19 that when Jesus comes back, he brings his people with him. That's us. If we're not alive at the time, he brings the people that came out of the, out of the tribulation. He brings people like Paul and people like Peter and James and Andrew and all those guys. Uh, people like great, uh, Billy Graham will be there and you and I will be there. And he brings us all back to reign with him. The idea there is we all have responsibilities. And so it's just mind-blowing to try to imagine what this would be like. And so I'm going to play with the imagination a little bit tonight because that's kind of what we got to go on here. And I want to play with it, though. What will it be like when Christ, we reign with him, and he assigns us responsibilities, okay? He assigns us places of service. He assigns us things to do that we'll find more fulfillment than we've ever found before. Now, assuming that the world is laid out like it is now, and that's a big assumption, He's going to say, this person is going to be president of the United States if we indeed have a president sort of thing. Uh, this person is going to be governor of Alabama. This person is going to be the ruler over Brazil. As I said, I, you know, this is imagination now. But there's not going to be any elections. Christ assigns it. And he said, puts you in a place where you are most suited. And so I don't know what's your most suited. I don't know what your, well, maybe you'll be mayor of slap out Alabama. <laughs> maybe, maybe you'll be in charge of the Bassmasters Classic. <laughs> maybe you'll, I, I, I got an idea. Don't tell Laura I said this. Laura's going to be manager of Dirt Cheap. <laughs> you know, I, I might be pastor of Hopewell Baptist Church. Rhonda may be cutting hair. 
whatever it is, it's going to be something that you're good at, you find fulfillment in, and just imagine what that world's going to be like. Here's some, of the, um, here's some of the promises of the Old Testament. Let me give you some of the promises of the Old Testament that many of us believe will literally be fulfilled in the thousand-year reign of Christ. And if they're not literally fulfilled, they at least are symbolic of something really, really special because when you read these promises that have not been fulfilled yet, you got to have the idea that this is talking about something amazing. Let me just mention, I, can't, I don't have time, of course, to go through all of it, but it's going to be a magnificent time. Peace, prosperity, joy, health like never before. It's not heaven, but it's a prelude to heaven. First of all, war will disappear. No war anywhere on the earth. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, New International Version says, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. We've not ever seen that happen. It's never happened in the history of the world. The best explanation I have, this happens during the millennial kingdom. Social justice, moral purity, and racial harmony will permeate human culture. And there's numerous verses we could talk about. Won't that be fantastic? Doesn't matter what you look like, where you come from, anything else. Nobody's discriminated against. You don't have to have um, laws to say you can't discriminate against the handicapped. You can't discriminate against somebody because of their race. You can't pay somebody less because of their gender. None of that. All of that will absolutely be taken care of. Disability, deformity, and disease will be eradicated uh, from the earth. number of verses about that. Long life will be normal. Look at Isaiah 65, 20. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. But the one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. Can you imagine somebody 100 years old? He's just a little baby. <laughs> hadn't, even got, hadn't even got going good. And the, one who, uh, and the one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. The uh, farmer's good news for you guys, the earth will be abundantly productive. Psalm 72, 16. May grain abound throughout the land. On tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. And I don't think this is just talking about farmers. This is talking about prosperity. This is talking about fulfillment. It's talking about your job is going to go better than it's ever gone before. Here's one that will blow your mind. Wild animals will not be threatening to human beings and live in peace. Isaiah eleven six, New International Version. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the gat, calf, and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Your child said, I want to, Isaiah said, I'm on a lion for a pit. And the host's fine. Go to the zoo and get you, pick you out one, man. Here comes old Isaiah, 10-year-old Isaiah leading the, leading the line around, you know. Something like that. Wouldn't that be kind of, that'd be kind of cool, wouldn't would it not? Look at Isaiah 62, verse 25, New Living Translation. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snakes will eat dust. <laughs> Bless their hearts, huh? In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then the last one, the knowledge of the Lord, of the true God, will extend to every person on earth. Quite the wonderful world. Now, I'm taking these promises as being literally fulfilled in the millennium. Different people, even premillennialists, dif dif disagree on that. But it's got to mean something, right? 
And when you read those promises that have not been fulfilled uh, yet on this earth, it helps us to see, hey, when Jesus reigns completely, it's a different ballgame. When Jesus reigns completely, things are different. Listen, there will be truth in education. TV stations will be unlike any, it'll be the best TV shows you've ever heard. Music written will not be trashy or ungodly. The uh, internet speeds are going to be fantastic. Video games are going to have graphics like you've never seen before. I don't know, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's going to be more than we could ever imagine. Books will be filled with truth. I mean, there's not going to be anything dirty and ugly and unholy, things like that. You don't have to worry about what your kid watches on TV when you're not there. All of that works in hard. Harmony. Why? Because Revelation chapter 20 is a promise of future hope to those who love Christ. What an encouraging word for the people of John's day. The people in John's day were being persecuted. Some of them were dying for Jesus. It looked like the devil was winning. It looked like evil was overcoming the church. But what this is saying to us is Satan's kingdom, the earthworldly kingdom, will never overcome God's people and never overcome God's church. The key is that Jesus is reigning and we are reigning with him. The other day, I was going somewhere or another, and uh, I had my, my phone, and I had a, um, a little booklet in my hand, and, um, but I, couldn't find, I got ready to go out the door, and I thought, where's my car key? I know, the only one does this, right? And so I put the stuff in my other hand, where's my car key? I can't believe it. And Laura and uh, Joel and Hannah Grace had gone to, uh, to Universal Studios, so I couldn't blame it on them. And, uh, but my, 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 my fallback was uh, I kept Hannah Grace's cat far while they were gone. I stupid cats. Not my key off on the floor. Where did that stupid cat put my key at? And so I'm looking around, blaming it on the cat, you know, and can't find my key, go to the bathroom, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, well, let me put my phone down, put my phone down, key between the phone and the little booklet I have. <laughs> in my hand the whole time. I'm looking for the key. I'm holding on. It's in between. I forgot I put it in there. Y'all, look, we're looking outside for fulfillment all over the place. And the key is in our hands. The key is that Jesus reigns completely in our individual hearts and lives. The third thing to have a wonderful world, Satan is going to be released and routed. At the end of the thousand years, Satan's going to be released from his incarceration and he's going to have this one final defeat. Seems to go against this wonderful world and there's so many questions about this that uh, I don't have answers for. But look, if you will, in Revelation chapter 20, we can drill down and get the meaning out of this. Verse seven, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, brimstone for other translations, where the beast's false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. After the thousand years is over, Gog and Magog, that stands for all the nations of the earth that are in rebellion against God, had this one final battle. And you wonder, how could that happen in the millennium? How can that happen when things are going so well with Jesus reigning? And the truth that I dig out of this, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit more in detail, but the big truth is we can't pull this off without Jesus. You got, the, you, got the wonderful, you got the devil 
kind of out of the picture for a while. Everything's going really, really well. Who is it that's rebelling? And the only answer that I really have for that, the only answer I've ever really found for that would be children that are born during the millennium. Because you see, uh, and it, it, throws, it throws out all kind of questions. Are people really going to die during the millennium? You know, there's all manner of questions there. But somehow, someway, somebody's going to rebel. And uh, that's, the only, that's the only truth I have, that's the only thing, answer I have, is that children born during the millennium are still going to need to be saved. They're still going to need to make a decision for Christ. Even though Satan's out of the way, how many of you know we can get enough trouble on our own? <laughs> our fleshly nature can, can find sin somewhere or another, can find rebellion. And, and the idea, the best idea I have is that there's going to be secret rebellion going on in people's hearts that when, sa- when Satan's released again, all of a sudden that rebellion is going to become outward. And so what happens, and this is not heaven yet. See, this is not heaven yet. This is the millennium. It's not heaven yet. What happens is Satan is defeated one last and final time. And you might wonder, why does that have to happen? I don't know. <laughs> I just know that this is what happens. And, and God wins the battle with a fire that just obliterates the enemy. And so in the end, what we know here, what we know, what we know for sure about this is that in the end, God's purposes will triumph. He will keep the church from being overrun and oppressed by the enemy. And even when the battle appears to be futile, even when the enemy seems like he's winning, listen, guys, victory belongs to the Lord. And he can do it with a word, and he can do it in an instant. Last of all, last of all, we see the retribution against sinners. The scene of the battle, uh, the final battle uh, gives way to the scene of the great white throne judgment. Look, if you will, in Revelation chapter 20, where God is going to judge and punish uh, forever those who have refused his son, Jesus. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what's called the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is not for believers. We appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive rewards, things we've done in our bodies, whether good or bad. This is for everyone who is not saved. Now, notice here, it says everyone whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life, everyone who has refused Jesus. Now, you and I can come here tonight, and we can put on a really good show. And there are people that can uh, be led astray and they say a little prayer, they get baptized or they try to walk an aisle, join a church, make their mama proud because their daddy really wanted them to and all that kind of stuff. But God is the only one who really knows our hearts. And on that day, those who aren't truly converted are going to stand before God. When it says their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, that means that God knows who belongs to him. I don't know that there's a literal book. Um, Maybe it is, but the idea is God knows when you got saved. God knows who belongs to him, and he has you. But those who aren't, those who never trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, then the books are open. 
And he knows all the sins, motive, thought, action, word, all the excuses, all the justifications, all that stuff. And he says that they'll be judged according to the books. And there's no hiding stuff from God. God knows everything. And it tells us that hell is going to be horrible for everybody. It's going to be worse for some. I mean, what, I mean it, obviously here, all the deeds are written down. There's going to be varying degrees of judgment. Jesus said that. Jesus said it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for some of those cities that he did his miracles in. And so for those, and here, here's the thing, of whom much is given, much is required. Those who had many opportunities like us to receive Christ as their Savior, many opportunities to hear the gospel, many opportunities of people sharing Christ, preaching Christ, singing Christ to them, and said, no, 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 no. I think hell's going to be way worse for those guys than somebody who maybe only heard the gospel once or twice. I, I, I don't know that it's just how horrible your sin was, but it may also as very well be how many times you had a great opportunity to say yes and refused Jesus? Wayne Grudem, the theologian, said this. He said, if our hearts are never moved with deep sorrow, we contemplate this doctrine. There is a serious deficiency in our spiritual and emotional sensibilities. Death is separation. And this second death is separation between the person who does not know Jesus and God, everything good and holy and loving and kind and patience forever. Sometimes you see these cartoons that depict Satan as the ruler of hell, as the governor, the king of hell. He's just another inmate, just another inmate along with everybody else. And there is no longer any opportunity for the, for the person to say yes to Jesus. This is the thing that grieves my heart and troubles my heart more than anything else that I preach is that there's coming a day when if you're not saved, then it's going to be too late. And I don't know about you, but I want, <laughs> I want everybody that I know and love, everybody that comes to Hopewell Baptist Church, everybody in my family, every, all of my friends, I want us to be the kind of church that says we care about people that don't know Jesus. We are after, we love, we want, no matter what kind of off-the-wall lifestyle we may think they're living, the biggest problem anybody has in this world is that they need Jesus. So would you stand, please, with heads bowed and eyes closed? With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around um, tonight. The word to John's audience and the word to us Jesus wins and wins handily. Keep Jesus, the absolute king of your life, my life, your family, my family, this church. Let him bring into our lives the wonderfulness of himself, the blessing of living with him, the joy of living with him, and may that so flow through us that it impacts other people. may not be that you need to stick your finger in someone's face and say you're going to hell. It may be that they need to see the joy and the love and the beauty of Christ shining in you. Your satisfaction, my satisfaction in Jesus. So, Father, we pray tonight thanking you 
that Jesus is going to turn this into a wonderful world one day. We thank you for the anticipation, looking forward there. And God, just the imagination of what that will actually look like and how we will actually experience you in those days. And Father, tonight we pray for those that we know that don't know you. I know that you love them more than we do, God. You care about them more than we do. Your son died for them. And we pray, Father, and um, all over this congregation, Lord, you, you, you see the people's names in our minds that we're concerned about, that we're praying for. We want to see them saved tonight. We ask you to open their eyes, take away the blindness, help them to see through the deception of the enemy, help them to see the great love and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we pray that you would draw them to be saved. With heads bowed and eyes closed, then we're looking around. Lisa begins to play softly tonight.